Now, we're constantly told that our schools, at least our public schools, are seemingly having to make do with maybe you know, a piece of chalk and a bit of stream of paper for decorating bulletin boards, and maybe they have a computer to be shared by hundreds of students and numerous teachers in any given school. Uh, as we'll learn, though, I think today, uh, the funding case is very much actually the opposite of this. Rather than great penury in public schooling, there's actually great wealth. Uh, moderating our discussion today will be Robert Enloe. In social capital lingo, especially Robert Putnam, he refers to people as either being mockers or schmoozers. Now, the former, the, the mockers, invest lots of time and effort in formal organizations to bring people together, while the latter have lots of informal contact, contacts and connections. Well, Robert Enloe is both of these things to the school choice community. He, he brings him both a mocker and a schmoozer of the greatest kind. Uh, he brings in lots of people uh, all over the school choice community together, uh, both in informal connections and formal connections, especially with his work at the Foundation for Educational Choice, which he is CEO and president, as well as work with other allied organizations. And he is also, among many things, all of them good, among many things, co-editor of the Cato book, Liberty and Learning, Milton Friedman's Voucher Idea at 50. I should also thank the Foundation for Educational Choice today for co-sponsoring today's forum. And with that, I turn things over to Robert Edmund. Thank you. So I guess the good news in that uh, introduction is that I'm not a mocking schmoozer. <laughs> so welcome to the Cato Policy Forum on behalf of the Foundation for Educational Choice and the Cato Institute. My name is Robert Enlow, obviously, and I'm the president and CEO of the Foundation for Educational Choice, Milton Friedman's Legacy Foundation. So I have three tasks here today. Introduce the panelists in the order that they're going to speak, uh, and make sure that we stay on time, and make sure we facilitate some good conversation and some stimulating dialogue. So what I will do is launch right into the introductions of our panelists, they will then make their presentations, and then we will go ahead and have a dialogue. So my, uh, Patrick Byrne, Dr. Patrick Byrne, is our first speaker. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Overstock.com, of Moralstock.com. He's also the chairman of the Foundation for Educational Choice. He has helped 19 schools start internationally in different countries, all named after his mother. Brand new kids, over 6,000 kids getting an education. He uh, is a national leader, and any of you know Dr. Byrne, knows that he has taken on two very simple tasks. He's decided to take on the teachers union through the Foundation of Educational Choice and the corrupt capital markets in New York City. He, his, this is just in his spare time of running a billion dollar business. Cancer survivor, black belt in Taekwondo, and one of the most, the leading authorities on internet retailing in the country. So we're very pleased that he was here to talk about his perspective on education reform and school spending. Our second panelist will be Dr. Kil Puff. Dr. Hutt is the Director of Research for the Pew Center on the States. He manages the state's fiscal research agenda and is leading the center's new project on state's fiscal health. Now, I know he'll give Indiana a great grade, given how great and fiscal, fiscally sound we are in our state where I'm from. Prior to joining Pew, he was the Director of Policy and Consulting for the Fannie Mae Foundation. And our final panelist will be Adam Schaefer. Adam is the Policy Analyst with the Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Prior to joining Cato, Adam was an NRI fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and an adjunct scholar at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He received his MA in Social Science from the University of Chicago, of 
uh, university we like a lot in the Milton Friedman world, and his PhD in American politics from the University of Virginia. So without further ado, let me introduce uh, Dr. Byrne, who will come up and speak, and then we will have questions and answer afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you. is the $264,000 question. First, it's a great honor to speak to you. I happened to, when I, when I was a college student, I used to mail in about $10 a year to the Cato Foundation. I was, as they said on Wall Street, I, was direct, I, I knew that you folks were directionally correct, even then. Uh, it's a great honor to speak to you. I'm going to be giving one of those talks with a lot of numbers in it. I know from experience, numbers tend to, it's easy to drone on and people go to sleep. I've thrown in as many punchlines as I can. Uh, unfortunately, all the punchlines come in the form of numbers. That means you have to be following along with the numbers. Fortunately, the numbers, the arithmetic is actually seventh grade, sixth grade arithmetic. The numbers are big, because we're talking about the government, but it's actually very simple arithmetic in general, and if you follow along, I think you'll be surprised. And that, uh, uh, my, my subject is, for all we talk about funding, and you go on the in, uh, on the internet and find all kinds of sites about that say we don't have enough funding in public schools, government schools, and Milton Friedman says we don't have enough money. We should need more money. All, there are all these sites dedicated that we need more money, but actually finding out what are we actually spending is surprisingly difficult. So I'm going to save you the uh, the effort. I'm going to show you all my sources. Uh, the only complicated part is I just want to remind you from a little bit of college economics, what's wrong with monopolies? They all recognize supply and demand. <laughs> supply and demand where they cross. There's a market clearing price. That's where supply and demand balance. Society gets whatever good we're talking about. This is how much stuff society gets. They get that much stuff. Now, if a monopoly comes along and a monopolist sets the price higher, you no longer that you have a new amount of demand at the monopolist price, society gets that much stuff, it gets that this much less stuff than it got before, and it pays this much more for it. The, the area there is called the monopolist, didn't show up, but that's called the monopolist, didn't show up on the screen, but it's the monopolist rent. The area that's in black is the monopolist rent. And economists use the phrase rents differently than normal people use them. Uh, you can invest in, you know, a customs official in Paraguay and extract rents. You can invest in a congressman and extract rents. You can invest in obtaining a monopoly and extract rents. That's the monopolist rent. It shows up on my screen, not so well out there. Uh, and that's what's wrong with monopolies. This is the amount that's being sort of thieved from society by a by the fact of it being monopoly. Society gets less of what it wants and pays more for it. So, stick, put a pin in that idea. I'm going to go on now with seven questions and answers about U.S. education and spending, and I'm going to show you my sources. First, how much, obviously it's in the news a lot, uh, the whole subject of government uh, spending. How much do state and local governments actually spend? How big are their combined deficits? How big is that versus the, the budgets? How much are we spending on K through 12 schools? How many students go? How much do we spend per student? And so how's that compared with the OECD? Well, how much do state and local governments spend? This is the, your citizen's owner's manual. 
that I assume everybody here is very familiar with. Uh, state and local government receipts and expenditures. This is 2008, the last one I had data for. 2008, it was $2 trillion. So we have a $14 trillion national economy, $2 trillion being spent by state and local governments. Uh, what are their combined deficits? Well, here's from 2009, uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, they had, they were estimating in 2009 a budget deficit combined for all the states of $62 billion. So again, put that number in your mind, $62 billion. It's, it, the estimates went up, I think, for last year. I think they, so they, there, there may be some disagreement, but just to give you the, about where this is, is now $80 billion a year. It's, it's often confusing because sometimes the numbers people quote are on a two-year basis and they don't identify it as being a two-year number, but so, you know, 60, 70, 80 billion dollars is, or 60 to 70 billion dollars is where I understand most current state of knowledge is where the sort of equilibrium state budget deficit is. Uh, so 60 billion on two trillion, that's 3%. So, now that's a surprising number because it doesn't sound like it's too hard to tighten your belt 3%. As a business operator, there have been many occasions I've had to go and try to scrape 3% out of our expenses. And the truth is, if you get real determined about it, you start going around looking for fat, you find 15 or 20% you can cut. So the entire state fiscal crisis is about 3% of the budgets of the state and local governments. How much do we spend on K through 12? K through 12. Here's some interesting numbers. This is a, a site devoted to pulling all these numbers together. Primary through secondary, six, 634 billion. I have another number, education not definable by level, 104. Now, I used to work for Mr. Buffett out in Omaha. And he taught me you never look at an income statement with a line on it that says other. And especially in other, you know, there's all these expenses in other, and often the other is really big. You never want to do business that way. Maybe if the if the other line is one or two percent of the total, you can look at it. But it should just be other than that. It should just be broken down. Don't know what he would say about a hundred and four billion dollar other line, but that's really what this is. It's education not definable by level. Uh, it comes to. So if you assume some significant fraction of that is education that goes to support K through 12, it gets you more in the $700 billion range. And just so you can tell, I'm not too wild to swag at this. Here's the US Department of Education publishes this every year. It's the condition of education. Uh, they have, and again, you have to put all this stuff up front about why we need to spend more on education but you have to dig into it to find what is it we're spending. <laughs> what we're spending, according to them, for the 06-07 year, at $250 billion mark, there's the states spending about $270 billion, there's local spending about $255 billion, uh, there's the feds spending $50 billion at the time, of course it's gone up quite a bit, but these numbers always lag three or four years behind. Uh, and if you add these up, you get to 583, you put in a 5% inflation, which is what it's been doing for at least 30 years, 100 billion again. 
So the point is, no matter how you cut it, we're spending about $700 billion, or how, no matter how you get there, but we're spending about $700 billion as a society on government education K-12. How many students go to the schools? Again, we go to the condition of education, and fifth, you see that we're spending, uh, the total number is just around this year crossing the 50 million student mark. So now we're spending, we're educating 50 million children, we're doing a sixth grade math, 700 billion divided by 50 million is $14,000. What's really funny about that is you, uh, you look, first of all, you, you look around and nobody, say, nobody says that they're spending this. This school, state says we're spending 9000 This says they're spending 11000 and this and that. Not everyone in the room can be shorter than the average person. There's got to be somebody spending over that. But none of them, first of all, none of them even say they're spending that much. But, thanks to the work of Adam, uh, I always wondered about that, like where this discrepancy was. And Adam's done some marvelous work. The Cato published a paper last year that shows, well, <clears throat> you know, the numbers that how they get to ten or eleven thousand is because there's about sixteen other buckets. They put things like the health care benefits of the teachers and the interest payments on the capital costs and the capital expenditures and so on. So they've got all these things that just don't count, and that's how they say eleven thousand. DC, for example, says it's spending about seventeen thousand, but if you count all these other things, it comes to twenty-eight thousand. Now, I would say that Adam's work, while directionally correct, is actually a little bit optimistic because, for example, in D.C., last I checked, which was about some years ago, there was a 30% absenteeism. So if it's still like that, you've got to divide the number by 0 0.7. 20,000 divided by 0 0.7 is 40,000. So however you get there, this in D.C., they're spending as about as much or at 28,000, you're spending the same as Georgetown Prep and, and single friends and such. 40,000, you're spending more than them per student. Going, that's how much is going into the system. And on a national level, it's 14,000. And but again, if you go district by district and state by state, you can't find it because uh, they take some of the money and put it in these other places. And Adam may well expand on that. By the way, just so you know, that's about 41% higher. This is again from the same uh, uh, Department of Education document uh, in the back. It's about 40% higher than the OECD, is what we said. So these are just some simple facts that to approach this problem, I would think would be, you pass me my water, would be the first things, as a business person, first things you'd want to know to enter this discussion would be, well, Instead of fighting about should we spend more, should we spend less, how we spend, just ask how much are we spending. Well, that's it. it it's a, it's harder than it should be. And one of Adam's proposal is to make it more transparent to see where these dollars are going. <coughs> but it's harder than it should be to find that number or to drive that number. <coughs> Here's a uh, there's a punchline coming up. I promise. Uh, Fourteen thousand dollars per child. Children are in the average classroom. If we turn to my favorite source, the NEA, uh, they say 
that there are 24.6 children in the average American classroom. Well, 24.6 children, uh, 14,000 per child times 24.6, that means there's $344,000 of expenditure per classroom. Interesting. Uh, how much does a teacher in a classroom cost? Well, here, teacher comp, this is actually from, I don't know, uh, 2007 is when this was came out. I, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says the average K through 12 uh, primary, secondary, and special ed school teachers make $47,000. Not complaining about that. Wish it were more, but let's just get the facts. The facts are about 40, 45 to 47, median and mean. And again, the NEA says that there was a benefit load of 1.27. So you do that math, it's about $60,000 is what it costs to employ a teacher. Uh, rent, heating, and lighting, well, they don't have to pay rent, but uh, in common space, I'm calculating, first, the average school, uh, average school class in the U.S. is about 800 square feet, but I've used 1,000 to be generous, and I've assumed $20 of rent and can. Now, you can't rent this space for $20 a square foot, but, you know, outside of Manhattan, most of America, $20 a square foot, you can rent and pay the, uh, the CAM, the common area maintenance and such for a, uh, that's kind of a class A office space in Salt Lake City, for example. So you do that math, that's 20,000. And 60,000 plus 20,000 is $80,000. Total direct cost of putting somebody in, in a class, renting the class, and that includes, you know, having janitorial and electricity and getting your waste baskets emptied and so on and so forth. So, the obvious question, if there's $344,000 going into the system per class and the teachers generating, it costs about $80,000 to compensate a teacher and pay for the class, uh, rent the space and heat it and light it and, and sweep it and so forth, where is the other $264,000 going? Well, this is my guess. It's the monopolist rent. What we're having is just what, uh, what we're seeing is just the nature of a monopoly to extract this value. I would be pretty angry about this if I were a teacher. And it seems to me kind of a hack approach. So much of the discourse is about, well, we gotta put more money into the top. You gotta put more, well, I'd love to, if I were a teacher and understood that I was ultimately being compensated about $60,000 and there's some costs of having a, a classroom, <clears throat> but I found out that $344,000 were going into the system, I'd want to know, that wouldn't seem right to me. It also wouldn't seem right that the answer is, well, let's make it, you know, 444, 544, that something's going on between the two. And I think that it's just the, it's what you expect to find in Monopoly. Here's a better idea. Let children withdraw from schools, save the $14,000. Now, here, I should mention, the teachers union objects. It's, well, you don't really save any money when a child withdraws from school, <coughs> to which I have two answers. One is, that's not what they say when you add a child to a school. You add a child, you definitely need more. But no, when your child withdraws, you don't save any money. You can't have it both ways. Secondly, another thing Mr. Buffett taught me was there's no such thing as a fixed cost. There are costs 
that you can carve out of a business and that take you two or three years, and there's costs that take you two to three minutes, and everything else falls on that spectrum. There's no such thing as a fixed cost. <clears throat> so uh, let the children withdraw, save the 14,000, give them each a scholarship for 6,000. And you save the 14 minus the six is the, you save $8,000, by the way, the fixed cost per child in the U.S., the true fixed cost, capital costs of the place are about 1200 well, they're $1,263. So even if you said, may, even if you bought the teacher's fixed cost argument, that, well, you really can't give up a little fraction of a classroom and things like that, there's a, there's a th you don't save the 8000 you save the 7000 you save 7000 So uh, the fiscal effect of saving that is if you assume 20% of children take this deal, 20% of the 50 million kids is 10 million. If you save $8,000 on 10 million kids, that's 80 billion in savings. And if 30% take the deal, that's 15 million kids. 15 million times 8,000 is 120 billion in savings. So again, 20% taking the deal save you 80 billion. 30% taking the deal save you 120 billion. Why are those numbers important? Remember this, 62 billion, maybe it's 70 billion, depending on who you listen to. We are, we could solve the entire state fiscal crisis if the states would adopt a voucher deal <coughs> that 20% of children took. In California, the number comes out being around 32%. In California, they're letting prisoners out of prison rather than let children with be offer, offering a deal like this and let children withdraw from the government school system. They'll let prisoners out of prison do before they'll let that happen. That is just a statement on our society's values and their thinking and the sclerosis of our political class. Thank you very much. Hi there. Um, I'm Kilha. I'm the director of research for the Pew Center on the States. Um, and the news that I'm going to give you is not that much better. Again, my name is Kil, but maybe I should be doom and Patrick could be gloom because that's pretty much the presentation that, that we're going to sort of be giving uh, of the state fiscal situation, unfortunately. So Pew started tracking uh, retirement benefits for public employees back in 2006. Um, we saw it as a long-term liability that not many people were paying attention to at the time. Um, you know, at the, at, at, in 2006, when the markets were still pretty um, strong, uh, states projected a, um, about a $350 billion shortfall. But they were generally well-funded, about 86% funded at that time. And, you know, we knew that um, at least we saw a, a trend when we looked the first time that states were pretty much ignoring their annual required contributions and that essentially they weren't meeting their um, investment return assumptions during that time. And, you know, we, we set it aside at that moment in time because the states really had the chance to sort of bounce back by uh, doing things like pre-funding and, 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 you know, the normal things that the actuaries will tell you to do. Uh, but, but, you know, given the deterioration in the market conditions, we wanted to take a look back. And when we looked again in 2009, what we found was that states faced a trillion-dollar gap. Um, about half of that in uh, pension uh, liabilities, unfunded pension liabilities, and about half, more than half of that in retiree health care liabilities. Now, these numbers are highly conservative. They don't take into account the uh, Wall Street crisis that took place in the third quarter of, of oh, third and fourth quarter of 08. 
Um, they also use the state's own assumptions for valuing the long-term liabilities. So that's very important to remember, and that's generally about 8%. And in addition to that, um, this basically um, only, um, like states use a smoothing mechanism. So, you know, any gains that they had um, uh, achieved in the last five years or any losses that they had um, incurred during those last five years are smoothed or averaged out over the, that five-year period. So this is not actually even a, that, that true of a picture of what's going on. Um, again, you know, this data was before the Wall Street crash, and, and you know, you've seen other evaluations of the liabilities from folks like Andrew Biggs as well as uh, Rao and Novi Marks, which, you know, um, really give you a different uh, range in terms of the size of the program. Uh, but, you know, if you take the states at face value in terms of where they were at 08, a trillion dollars is still pretty darn bad. Um, and, and if you really start to um, dig underneath some of their assumptions, you realize that the problem is actually far worse. Um, when, when we first, when we looked at this and did an aggregate snapshot of the, the states at, at this point in time, you know, we saw that they were only 84 percent funded, still well above uh, the threshold that the GAO had set for a well-funded plan. But then you look underneath those numbers, and then you begin to see a different picture. Uh, 21 states actually had less than 80 percent of the assets on hand to pay for their projected liabilities. Uh, some states, like Illinois and um, uh, Kansas, were below 60 percent funded, and their conditions, uh, based on the recent financial reports, is even further deteriorated. Illinois is at essentially 50 percent funded, which means that half of their uh, plan is not funded at this moment in time. They've got $12 billion in outstanding pension bills, uh, pension bonds, excuse me. And, and, and lawmakers are seriously grappling with whether or not they can afford to uh, float an additional $4.35 billion worth of bonds just to make the plan solvent. And, you know, the, 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 the tricky situation they find themselves in is that even if they raise that amount of money, they're still not going to have enough money to address that unfunded liability. It's going to be toward paying the annual contributions. The scarier story is, look at their unfunded um, retiree health care. This is something that states had not tracked for a long time. They largely operated on a pay-as-you-go system, with the exception of Arizona and a few other uh, states. Um, by and large, what we found when we looked across the spectrum was that these states only had about 5% of the assets set aside in order to pay for these liabilities. Um, there were 20 states that had set aside no money whatsoever uh, to fund these plans, and, and among them, um, uh, some of the largest, like California and, and New York and New Jersey, um, which was very, very uh, alarming. Um, and if you just sort of apply, you know, just a, a crude um, projection into the future, like the the seven percent rate in terms of uh, uh, healthcare growth, the uh, growth in healthcare spending over time, the 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 five hundred and eighty-seven billion dollars uh, of unfunded liabilities, or the retiree healthcare bill, is going to grow at that rate, and 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 the costs are just going to be astronomical in in a, in a very short amount of time. Now. <clears throat> Looking at a little bit of the spending categories and what's driving state budgets in terms of um, the flexibility or the breathing room that they might have. Um, total spending over 10 years had grown about 63% for all states. So that's education, Medicaid, uh, correction spending, and, and, and you know, the whole gamut of things that states sort of um, um, appropriate out of their general fund uh, budget. Um, if you look here, you know, K through 12, corrections, transportation, and Medicaid were some of the biggest drivers, um, as reported by the National Association of Budget Officers. Um, you know, these liabilities or these spending categories had just grown over 60 percent, which is, which is highly alarming. I mean, you know, this is not even the revenue picture that we're looking at. This is just spending. And spending has just gotten really out of control at the state level. But one of the things that you don't see in these financial statements, even though uh, these, these um, uh, liabilities or these um, um, 
uh, liabilities are paid for through the general fund expenditure budget are, are pensions and OPEB. Those are not tracked. We actually have to extract that information uh, from other sources. Uh, they're comprehensive financial reports. And when we looked at pensions, I mean, you know, over a period of 10 years, and, and we couldn't do this for retiree health care because GASB, the, stand, uh, the accounting standard boards that basically govern the public plans, uh, didn't require states to start reporting their uh, retiree health care liabilities in two until 2008. They put the rule into effect in 2004, but GASB moved so slowly that states had not fully adopted um, this standard until 08. So this is the first picture that we're seeing. But we have an idea of at least what it looks like on the pension side. And if you look, in 2000, it was, it was a $27 billion annual expenditures that states had to pay to basically make themselves whole over a 30-year period. Um, through a series of benefit increases, um, kicking the can down the road by not paying these bills, this bill has just exploded to $64 billion. It's a 135% increase. These, uh, the pension liabilities and the health care liabilities alone are really going to cause some very challenging circumstances for states moving forward. Um, one of the things that this also doesn't take into account is just essentially um, any changes um, with respect to uh, the way that states have paid for it. But going forward, you can sure expect, given the fiscal conditions, that states aren't going to be able to meet their ARC because they haven't in the last five years. And with the performance of, of the markets, um, you know, we just really don't know if they're going to be able to get the outsized returns that they're expecting in order to make up, up the, 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 the median losses, which were about 25 percent in, in the third and fourth quarter of 08. Um, you're beginning to hear some. Uh, oh, well, before I go there, you're beginning to hear some good news about um, uh, pension assets bouncing back. The census just released some preliminary numbers, um, which track the third quarter of, of 2010, and it said that investment returns um, uh, year over year had had risen about 19 percent. It's good news. So, you know, a lot of people have been asking me, you know, are states out of the woods yet? Well, y you know, good news, but not not at all by by no means. Um, what, what the census numbers also told you was that the states, as well as the employees that contribu contribute to their uh, pension assets, um, ha had actually dipped. The pension empl employee contributions alone were, were at 2005 levels at the end of 2010. And so what you see here is perhaps gains on the investment side, but you know, you're not seeing any um, 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 upward movement on, in terms of what the employer is paying and the employees are contributing. Um, you, know, you have an, a shrinking public employee work base, and so you have less people paying into the system, and that's a big challenge for them moving forward. The other thing that I alluded to was just the, the, the different types of estimates in terms of their, their liabilities moving forward, especially their unfunded liabilities. So again, when we looked in 2008, you know, these were among the states that sort of represent a, a range of, of, of plans that had different levels of, of financial health. New York, the best funded plan in the country. California, which is kind of middle of the road. You have Illinois, which was the worst funded. And Arizona, um, which was just a state because I wanted to you know, pick a state in the southwest. Um, so, you know, using their original assumptions, this is what they report their financial situation looking like in terms of their, their pension plans. New York is running a surplus, assuming an 8% uh, return on investment. California is running about a $35 billion shortfall, so they're about 84% funded using a 7.75 um, return of assumption. Um, and Illinois, you know, it's, they're running a $53 billion shortfall. Um, you know, Arizona using a, a blended uh, rate of assumptions, some, anywhere from 7.75 to 8.5, um, had about an $8 billion shortfall. But then you start to play around with this numbers. You know, what this number basically tells you is, you know, what is the expectation that states will essentially achieve an 8% return on their assets year over year? That is what they're assuming. And, and, and you know, if someone could actually give me 8%, I'd have all my money with them, because that is just you know, a, a, an incredibly generous rate to assume. But if you look at 
adjusting these rates, this is what you find. You know, seven, you, you, you change it down to 7%, just one percentage point uh, for many of these states. And what you see is every, sh every state has a shortfall. New York has a shortfall about 2.6 billion. Illinois shortfall grow, uh, uh, grows, as does California. Same thing with Arizona. You adjust it to a 6% uh, rate of, retu uh, rate of ret return assumption, which is pretty much what FASB requires the private sector employee plans to assume. The, the discount rate that the, that the corporations use or the private plans use is, about, is tied to a high-grade corporate bond, so it floats anywhere from 6 to about 6.4. So you know, using 6, just to be conservative, this is the shortfall that you see. California has an $82 billion shortfall. Illinois has an $83 billion shortfall. New York, which was the best funded state in the country, um, has nearly an $18 billion shortfall. That's the power of this one particular number. And there's a lot of discussion going on in terms of what is the right rate. Certainly, um, there's some federal action calling for greater transparency, calling for uh, re-examination of the discount rate. A lot of state lawmakers um, are, are actually trying to re-examine this rate, too. But you know, they're in. Um, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place in, in, in this regard. Because you, if you change these assumptions downward, you're essentially requiring the state to pay more into the fund year over year over year. And this is just not the time that states can actually address that challenge. Um, states, as you've learned, are facing anywhere between a 60 to $70 billion shortfall. And that's just at the beginning of the year. That's what they project they'll have. Um, um, uh, th th that's what they project in terms of the shortfall that they need to uh, pencil out at the beginning of the year. So on paper, they either raise taxes or cut, or cut services, and they basically balance their budgets at the beginning of the year. It doesn't say anything about the holes that open up through the course of the year, which is certainly something that states have to address. I mean, you've heard that states constitutionally have to balance their budget, but that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they balance their budget throughout the year. It's just at the beginning. So you know, these are the challenges that states have actually uh, need to address. And, and right now, unfortunately, is not a time where they're in a situation to do it. Even with historic revenue increases of $29 billion in 2008 and $3 billion in 2010, um, states are still losing ground. And, and that's the situation that, that they find themselves in. So I talked a little bit about what's going on at the state level in terms of the challenges. Um, you know, the markets are bouncing up, but you know, again, as I said, they have to get sort of outsized returns anywhere from, um, like, you know, if you have a 25% loss, you're you're looking at 12% returns on investment for five years just to basically get back to where you were. And you know, with that in mind, you know, states know that even for them, that that's that's a little unrealistic. So what are they doing? They're doing things like cutting benefits, increasing employee contributions, which are two ways that really sort of bend the curve with pension plans. And in 2010 alone, 19 states um, enacted reforms along those lines. Um, one of the states that you don't see here is Pennsylvania because our data collection ended in um, October of 2010, and in November, Pennsylvania enacted some changes that essentially um, reduced benefits. Um, but you know, among the more notable of these changes, um, you know, you had um, Colorado, South Dakota um, um, changing uh, retiree benefits for retirees. So they wanted to go uh, adjust the cost of living um, that, that states were allowed, up from 3.5% down to a more reasonable perhaps 2 or 1.5. Um, you had Utah introduce a hybrid system for all new employees. So it was a reduced defined benefit as well as a uh, defined contribution plan. You saw similar changes in 2009 in Georgia um, under the banner of choice, which you know, employees were asking for. They actually wanted uh, other options be besides a DB, and the legislature there in Georgia was very responsive. 
Um, Missouri um, was one of the states that was notable. It, it, like Illinois, increased its retirement age to about 67. Well, not about, but 67, which is the highest um, uh, of all the states, um, Illinois and Missouri. Um, they changed the vesting period around. And, and for the first time, and this is really what's alarming, they required their own employees to pay into their retirement, because that's not a practice they actually had engaged in before. Um, those changes alone in 10 years are expected to save the state about $600 million. So, you know, the, the changes might seem small now, but over a period of time, they can introduce some real significant savings. But the hard work isn't over for them. I mean, they really have to keep at it, um, only because, as I mentioned, you know, investments are, are strong, good news, but the employee contributions and the employer contributions are just not there. And those are essentially the three ways that these plans essentially generate revenue. Um, you know, just a quick word about the types of reforms that we've tracked over the decade. As you see, there's been a lot of movement. And, and what we see, uh, at least moving forward, is that there's still more to come. Uh, states like Maryland um, are, are, are proposing reforms, um, actually quite simple but clever reforms, where they're thinking about increasing the um, employee contributions to a point where it almost fully funds the old plans and introducing a reduced um, uh, level benefit for, for new employees, which essentially gives you choice. So if you want a, a defined benefit program, you still are able to participate in that, but you're just going to have to carry it full freight. Um, or you could participate in a state plan where you're sharing some of the burden with them, but then you know it essentially helps the state sort of relieve some of the long-term pressures that it's facing with these pension liabilities. Um, and, and just a quick note about the data and the coverage. Um, these are state-administered plans. We looked at about 231 plans across the country. Um, it's one of the more comprehensive analyses out there. Um, about 60% of, of the um, plans in our, in our study are, are education-focused, um, not just K through 12, but also um, university and community college professors. It's really hard to disaggregate what's going on. I think Patrick was um, giving you a demonstration in terms of just how difficult it is to sort of unpack these numbers. There are way too many other categories, uh, as, you, as, as he said, in, in these financial statements that makes it really difficult to understand the full picture. But hopefully what I've done here is to provide you a little snapshot of what's going on. And um, with that, I'll say thank you very much. Well, uh, those are huge and frightening numbers, uh, absolutely. And um, as Patrick mentioned and, and killed, those uh, probably, probably not all the spending. Uh, actually, certainly not all the spending. It's uh, extremely difficult to get a handle on on uh, public school financing. In particular, I would say actually that the uh, public schools are the most unaccountable and non-transparent public service in this country. Uh, there's really no one looking at them with a critical eye, or ha there hasn't been for a very long time. And I'm I'm happy to see a lot of people around the country are looking at them much more closely and asking, what exactly are we spending? What exactly are we getting? And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do right now is, is uh, demand at the state level a level of transparency that we've never had um, and, and a level of uh, responsiveness that we've never had before in, in public school um, expenditures so that we know up-to-date figures on what we're spending and where exactly it's all going. It's very difficult. Uh, process. And certainly we need to change the pension plans. Um, this, this is a, a long-term threat that uh, is starting to hit home right now in the short term. And if we don't change those, uh, it, it's going to be a disaster. Um, doom, gloom, and I'd like to make mine controlled panic, um, if, if that's possible. I don't know. Uh, 
I'd like to benchmark some of this spending and some of these figures against one of the main categories of spending that people usually point to as what, what's going to drag states under and, and possibly lead to uh, bankruptcies. People are talking about the possibility of that, and that's Medicaid spending. A lot of the figures that you see thrown around include federal spending. Uh, it's, it's the lion's share of that spending, and so I want to back that out and compare Medicaid and education spending and, and, and see what that looks like. You know, uh, Medicaid's supposed to be bankrupting states. Well, how much do we spend on K-12 education? Uh, when you add in the local level, it's even more dramatic because Medicaid is a state and federal program. Uh, education, a lot of it comes from the local, uh, local governments. It's, it's mainly state and local money. Um, when you look at just uh, a share of state-derived and local-derived tax revenue, um, and, and, and what the Medicaid and education spending is as a share of that. 44%, uh, 44 cents out of every dollar, tax dollar raised, goes to K-12 public education. Uh, in comparison, Medicaid pales in comparison, 17 cents out of every dollar. In other words, we spend two and a half times uh, what we do on Medicaid uh, on education, public education, at the state and local level. This is what it looks like here. The, the, the structural, structural problem in state and local finances is education, not, not Medicaid. Uh, the increase in Medicaid is going to essentially uncover that fact and make it very difficult for state and local governments to deal with the unfolding fiscal crisis, which to now uh, the federal government has largely papered over. Uh, if we look at just the local level, about half of every tax dollar raised goes to K-12 education before you get to fire, police, roads, all the other services. Uh, Medicaid, it's a state program and it feeds through, through the state. That's not saying there's not healthcare costs, but this big program is not really on the, book, on the books for them. At the state level, uh, 40% compared to now 29%, and that's after federal money goes away and the states have to make up for that. Um, changes in the healthcare law and uh, Obamacare and uh, increase, huge increases in enrollment um, due to the economy. Now, if you add, uh, according to one study that doesn't include a lot of what uh, Kill does, uh, looking just at teacher pension plans, about $800 billion in unfunded liabilities. If you add those in, then state and local tax dollars, uh, the share for education is about 50%. So this doesn't even include the unfunded liabilities that he, he, was, he was speaking to. <clears throat> So what's going to happen then this year when states have to close their budget gaps uh, and deal with the huge increase in Medicaid uh, enrollment and costs uh, when from 1992 to 2011, the, the share of education uh, spending as a share of their total budget, uh, total, total tax revenue increased 84%. Um, in that two-decade decade time period, uh, it rose 65% for local governments. In other words, the share of, uh, of tax dollar revenue going to public K-12 education has risen dramatically over the past two decades. They're going to have far less flexibility to deal with this economic crisis than they have in the past. Um, as I said, states are losing their Medi federal Medicaid money to a large extent. A huge portion of it's going away. Uh, a huge portion of education funding at the federal level is going away as well because the stimulus is ending. And local governments are going to be looking to the state to fill that gap. The state's going to be looking at their gap in Medicaid funding 
and I seriously doubt that they're going to respond in the way that, that they have in the past. I think local governments and, and school districts are going to be, to a large extent, on their own and facing cuts that they've never had to deal with uh, previously. Uh, property property uh, taxes, uh, property values are not going to skyrocket anytime soon. They're going to continue to face huge shortfalls in revenue uh, for some years to come. In some ways, I think uh, it, it's analogous to what's going on with many families uh, across the country. You have house payments uh, that, as a share of your income, were, were too large probably when you had two incomes. Someone loses their job, health care costs are rising, and something has to give, and that's the biggest part of your budget. In the case of homeowners, it's, it's foreclosure. And in the case of state and local governments, it is public education. So do we need to foreclose on, on public education? I, I think that certainly there are very few options. One is drastic cuts uh, to the per-student funding of, of, of public schools. I think we're going to see cuts, but are people really going to want to see the type of cuts uh, that they, they've never seen before, R real reductions in, in what the public schools provide? Um, as Patrick said, monopolies take a rent, and they need to have more to give a, a certain value uh, uh, in services. Um, it's wasteful. They need, they need a lot of money so they can waste some. Um, and, and, and I think politicians and the public are, go are going to be faced to recognize the inefficiency of the public system in a way that they never have before because of this structural problem. <clears throat> School choice gives us a way out of this, as Patrick pointed out. You can save a tremendous amount of money um, just by giving a relatively modest voucher or education tax credit to fund private school choice in the private sector. Uh, the average uh, public school spending is thirteen dollars or $14,000. The typical private school spends about 8000 or so and charges around uh, $6,000 in tuition. It's not that difficult to see how you can make up uh, a huge amount of savings by allowing some students to choose uh, private schools. It's not a theoretical matter either. In states across the country that have adopted private school choice programs, we see they save millions of dollars every year, even on small and restrictive programs. In the flagship voucher program in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it was estimated uh, they saved about $32 million in one year. Uh, Andrew Colson, the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here, estimated that a large-scale tax credit program in that, uh, in that state could save $8 billion over five years. Arizona, their, uh, one of their tax credit programs was estimated to save between 44 and 186 million in a year. Pennsylvania, 530 million. And in Florida, the education tax credit program there was estimated by the Government Accountability Office to save about $1.50 for every dollar in tax credits. In other words, a 50% 50 return on their money in a single year. Um, these are things that can't be ignored, I don't think, with the current situation that we're in. Um, it is drastic. Something needs to be done that restructures the way that we invest in public education and, and, and puts it on a path that invests in education in a more effective and efficient way. Um, public education is not simply government schools. It's an educated public. And the way that we get there doesn't speak to public education, private sector, public sector. Um, we can increase academic achievement at the same time we save billions of dollars. And I think really in this fiscal environment, there's uh, not too many choices. People are going to be unhappy. It's a matter of who's unhappy and how many people are unhappy. 
And instead of massive across the board cuts to public education, we can simply allow people to take a more efficient way um, uh, of, of educating their child, put the money back in the hands of taxpayers and parents, and save money and improve public education along with the, the, the increase in achievement we see in uh, students in the programs, uh, uh, the private school choice programs. Um, more attention is being paid to this, uh, but much more needs to be done. I think we need to have more transparency. As I said, we need to pass state laws that increase uh, transparency at the uh, school district level and collects in a timely manner um, the spending, uh, spending figures and spending data so people can analyze them and use them in real political time. Uh, the teacher pension and health care um, and school choice, of course. And one area that I think uh, all of our organizations and certainly uh, um, uh, the Friedman Foundation, uh, organization formerly known as the Friedman Foundation, uh, it, it can help, um, I know they've been focusing on this as well uh, to a very large extent, is making the public more aware of how much we spend because they really don't know. They, the, they've done some great state polls recently, a six state poll, uh, asking people to guess how much we spend on public education. Um, people don't guess anywhere near thirteen or fourteen thousand uh, dollars. Typically, they guess four thousand or less. It's kind of shocking, but not all that surprising, considering the fact that the public schools aren't very forthcoming in telling the public how much they're spending in the first place. Uh, when you ask people whether they think school choice will save money or increase costs, they actually think school choice will increase costs, which is again not surprising. It's a change in a government program. People think it will increase achievement, but usually things that work cost more. And it, it's a difficult concept, I think, but uh, something that we need to get into the public debate much more. School choice is a cost-saving uh, program, not, not an additional burden to the public. Um, you put those two together, I think, increase awareness of how much we're spending and increase awareness of the savings that could be had with school choice while we increase academic achievement. And I think there's going to be a huge groundswell of demand for uh, a way out the, of, of, this, of this difficult dilemma, a way out of these drastic cuts to public school uh, services. Um, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to be taking questions, I, I think, here in a second, and um, look forward to uh, something, uh, some questions that increase the general level of gloom and doom and, and panic and consternation. Thank you. So there'll be people walking around with microphones. We have a question. One question I'd like to start off with. We've got doom, gloom, and controlled panic. I'm sort of reminded of escape from New York. You know, with all of this doom, gloom, can I like to ask the panel to start with, wh why isn't the public up in arms about this now? Why, I mean, we're talking about it, but why isn't there massive Tea Party-like change uh, given all this doom, gloom, and controlled panic? So I'd love to hear the panel start with that, and then we can get questions. Uh I think one problem is uh, just what uh, Patrick and, and Kill and I all pointed to, which was is, is the general lack of awareness about spending, um, uh, the, the difficulty in getting precise, up-to-date spending figures. When <clears throat> Governor Chris Christie in New Jersey was uh, talking about how much they spent in Newark, <clears throat> there were four or five respectable numbers floating around that had anywhere from one $1,000 to $3,000 differences. You know, it ranged from, I don't know, like, uh, 12,000 to 17,000. Uh, these were university uni university numbers. Um, they're all over the map, and it's very difficult to educate the public when they're, they're, there's all these numbers. <clears throat> and I also think that uh, no one's had to deal with it uh, um, until now. 
Uh, we had uh, record boom in housing prices, which gave uh, local governments a ton of uh, a ton of money to play with. Um, the economy was doing, you know, generally well, and um, you know, as education takes up a bigger share when you have a recession like this, I think people are, are locked into these uh, wasteful public school systems that we can no longer afford. Patrick, kill. Well, I would add to that. So it, the numbers are hard to get. Certainly, the public I don't think has a good sense of it. You know, in South Carolina, they say they spend three thousand dollars. Well, I mean, they just lie so badly. Uh, they take out billboards. Teachers even take out billboards. Like, We're just spending $3,000 out here. They're just lying through their teeth. Also, they don't have any sense of what a private school costs. I think it's part of the problem. The, uh, it is about $6,000. I think it's about 4500 for K through 8, and it's about 7000 something, 8000 for for high school. Uh, I think Adam's study showed somewhere between 75 and 93% of private schools are less expensive than the numbers that we're spending on public schools, but still people have this sensible private school is this elitist thing. If you try to tell people, no, it's about half the cost of a public school, it's, it's something that hasn't sunk in. So it's really the public consciousness has gotten pummeled from lots of different directions. Mm -hmm. You know, just I think part of what um, Adam and Patrick said um, is right on point. I mean, I think the numbers are really difficult to get. They're hard to understand. And I think um, we just haven't had to, um, as a public, face the tough choices yet. I mean, if you just take the stimulus and disaggregate the state and local uh, spending portion of it, it essentially just papered over the cuts and the tough decisions that states would have had to make over the last three years. So, you know, as Dick Ravitch likes to say, he's a, he's a Democrat. He basically worked to uh, make New York solvent again in the 1970s. All the stimulus did was shift the timing a little bit and make that platform in which states had to sort of fall much higher. Um, and, and I think that that is part of the problem. And I, I think with the stimulus going away, um, you may see some additional awareness. I think also, you know, we did a five-state poll looking at five fiscally distressed states, California, Illinois, New York, Florida, and Arizona um, were part of the sample. And um, I think the public is starting to get it a little. Um, they are really opposed to borrowing and putting off um, 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 these tough choices that the lawmakers have to make. Um, you know, they feel, um, which is very alarming, um, just because if you, if you know state budgets, you just know how difficult these kind of cuts would be, that, that, that you could make 10% uh, to 20% across the board cuts, majorities feel that 10 to 20% cuts would be feasible without um, harming services whatsoever. Um, so I think that, you know, that those point to two things, that there's not really an understanding of, of the numbers, uh, but then also an, a, an appetite to, to, to act now. Those things are slightly incongruous. Um, but I think because there's such a, a paradox in terms of where we are right now, like we have to move forward, yet we really don't have the public will to do so, um, it's going to force, I think, um, uh, people to really look in the mirror and, and, and reevaluate what they want out of state governments and what they want out of, um, uh, out of their communities. I would jump on top of one other aspect, and that is the fault is really with us. The, the, the fault is with the, the pro-freedom people who have been pushing vouchers. Most of the dialogue, or almost all of it, really has been about the efficacy. And there's tremendous research that's come out, and I'm sure has been discussed here many times, about what happens with vouchers and how it closes the achievement gap between you know, between races and underprivileged people and how effective vouchers have been. And there's, 
you know, been over 10 peer-reviewed academically published studies and, you know, 8 out of 10 show to a 95% confident level that vouchers work. And so, so much of the dialogue has been about do vouchers work and then the other side comes up with, I think, a lot of intellectually shoddy arguments against, you know, constitutionality and saying it doesn't work and so forth. But very little of the pro-freedom of discussion so far has been not only do they work, but look at the tremendous amount they save. That's pretty much been absent from the conversation other than, a, you know, well, it's pretty much been absent at the, in, from the conversation until about the last two years. I agree with that. Please first, sir, there, and then we'll move on. Uh, identify who you are, please, and where you're from. Glerner, Washington Latin uh, Public Charter School. So the problem I have with the whole voucher argument is that we have tried to sway people to vouchers with l rationality and logic almost from the time Milton Friedman came up with the idea, and it really hasn't worked. So I'm wondering if much more likely would be a scenario where the states turn to charter schools to try and control the per-pupil allotment that uh, we spend on education. Go ahead, I'll hit that first. <laughs> okay, the, I view it as a continuum. The first step is, I think, what they did in Oakland, where you have backpack funding, go to any private, any public school you want, the money goes with you. Henry Ford, you can have any card you want, as long as it's a black card. Uh, next step is charter schools, and then the next step is tuition, tax credits, or vouchers. I happen to prefer vouchers, because I think that they're simpler, but uh, I know Cato, I think, has a, has a bias towards Tuition, ta I mean, modest preference for tuition tax credits. Okay, I, I didn't no, it's okay. I'm actually basically indifferent, except I like the simplicity of vouchers. There's someone, so I'll take I'll take a half a loaf. I'll take a quarter loaf. I think a step towards charters would be a step in the right direction. Uh, you want to make a comment? Uh, yeah, I just say uh, I, I don't think it it's it's not working. Right. Uh, uh, th this is a, a government monopoly that's been in place for you know about a hundred years. Uh, everyone thinks it's as American as apple pie. That, that's a really difficult thing to go up against. I mean, e even if you didn't have people going in and learning from government schools and, 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 and having these attachments to their hometown government school, um, just simply trying to go up against a government monopoly is extremely difficult. So I think the success that we have had over the past 20 or so years has been pretty remarkable. Um, and you have uh, special needs vouchers in particular spreading, uh, education tax credits for low-income kids spreading. Um, in, in Florida, just recently, you had the program basically voted to be uncapped. It can grow indefinitely at 25% every single year. And 42% of Democrats in that state voted for it, over half of the Black Caucus. So that's, that's a really remarkable shift, considering how important the teachers' unions are. Um, and so I see a lot, of, a, a lot of optimism in terms of how much traction we've gotten and then the, the, the financial logic that everyone's talking about here today, I think, is going to force a lot of people who would rather not do that uh, to look seriously at it. And so I'll only add a slightly controversial point here. Uh, we want more choice. We want a lot more options. But one of the big problems right now, one of the questions in the charter school movement is funding parity. What's happening right now is the actual government school funding is up here. Charters are saying, well, we're down here offering a good price, and they're now saying, well, that's not fair. We really need a whole lot. So I think that's why you need a whole wide diversity of options. And I think states, you know, when we started in, in 1996, there were five school voucher and tax credit programs in the country in five states. There are now 27 programs in 16 states in D.C. You are seeing growth of all types, both charter and, and, and I think our goal here is to get all types of options for all types of parents. 
I, just one quick thing on that, because I think the charter the charter funding issue is going to become even it's more yeah. it, more important because uh, the, the other issue is uh, usually the state kicks in more than their share to the local government. In other words, they they make up for the loss of local funds for the charter schools. So actually, when you look at the state spending, it, it's negative for a lot of charter schools, even though they're spending less and they want more. So uh, in in this kind of environment, I don't I don't know if it's going to be fiscally possible, really. Um, especially some states prevent uh, local funds from being co-opted for that. So, you, then you, and then you, ma'am. Sorry, go. Sorry, sorry. Yes, please again introduce yourself. Hi. Thank you uh, for your question. Merrill Smith, Independent. Um, if I may, I'd like to suggest one answer to that question, and then ask a question. Uh, I would like to suggest one answer of why it's so difficult is that for most, let's I, perhaps most Americans in middle class, small towns went to public schools that weren't, A, weren't that bad, the parents exercised more control to make sure the quality was high enough, B, they're probably less expensive than the urban schools where the school systems are used as a jobs program, and, but however, the victims of where they're pathologically bad schools, in addition to being extremely expensive, um, have a very disempowered population that doesn't speak up, much more in control of the bureaucracy, my, of the monopoly. That's one suggestion. I don't know, I have an answer to how to overcome that, but I do put that on the table. Question is, I'm totally preaching the converted uh, on to me on on this uh, voucher, all these options, vouchers, tax credits, whatnot. But, and I'm sure that most of them would be used in a good way, an extremely efficient way. But I want to throw out a few problematic examples just to see how you can address them. Uh, what if, and I'm sure you've dealt with this before, what if people want to give their vouchers to some horrible madrasa or something that educates people in, in uh, mis terrible uh, ideologies? Um, a. B. What, shouldn't another option be homeschooling? I mean, that's even more efficient. Uh, and it gets around the question of, of when the, the teachers union has the, or the bureaucracy has the answer to that question, how do you deal with bad usages of vouchers? They're going to overregulate the private schools to where they're no better than public schools. So homeschooling really puts the choice in the hands of the parents, except there's a problem. I'll just throw it out. How do you avoid dis, um, incentivizing parents to opportunistically take the money that they would be spending in taxes and not, not that they would, not that I have more faith in parents would not betray their own uh, children's interests than the state would, but I think you'll have some incompetent parents doing something like that. Please go ahead, Patrick. Well, Adam, do you want to go first? No, no. You sound like, well, I'd say to your, to your first point you made, I'd actually say I would leave off I, I, why it's having so, or I mean, I left off. Why it is having so much trouble is just the point you made. 67% of African-American families with a child of school age years support vouchers. About 70% have Hispanic. I think that one of the things we're up against is racism. In my speaking ex-cathedra, in my experience, the most racist people in America are guilty white people. And I don't, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of racism on the right. It doesn't, in my experience, I, it doesn't get expressed privately like it does uh, with the consistency that it does to me in sort of guilty white America. And this was alluded to in that movie, Waiting for Superman. If you listen carefully, if you've heard, if you've seen that movie at the very opening, the guy sort of alludes to this, this place that we liberals don't want to go. But if you, you know, mo I, I look at this and I look at the difference in achievement between white and African-American and the evidence that vouchers have produced already of how quickly that gap grow, uh, closes, and it's amazing in voucher programs. Basically, you make up about two years of difference for every year they're in a voucher program. It's just this, and the fact that we tolerate that is, I think, because white America 
at some level, and especially on the left, has kind of looks, I look at it and I'm horrified and say, how do we fix that? And, but I think that there's lots of people who think deep down that can't be fixed. So I think that's one of the big impediments to vouchers. Uh, I'll stop there. I've taken up my, my time. Here you go. I, I mean, I, I think I think there's a, a, a significant portion of that in in the resist in, in the, the the resistance to school choice programs that parent that poor parents will make poor decisions, especially, and that they, they they need their choice needs to be controlled in some way. Parent to your other point that parents parents some parents will make poor choices. Uh, it, you know, I, I think it's a, a matter of a trade off between the current harm and and, and what we can expect. Um, the madrasa and uh, other difficulties with with those choices and, and how, how bad of a choice do uh, does the public allow to happen um, if there's a program I think that it's a difficult question to address but one of the reasons that uh, I think uh, education tax credits are uh, likely to resist regulation a bit bit more um, even though they can be regulated heavily um, is because it stays within private hands and the funding can be withdrawn by taxpayers who donate to the scholarship organizations. Uh, in Florida, you had a situation where um, there was a, a scholarship organization um, that was associated with a school that had unsavory ties to uh, jihadi groups. Um, it, the funding dried up. Uh, I think it was related to Sami al-Aryan, who was an unindicted co-conspirator and something or other. Um, people pulled the money from it. Um, and they were able to do that without passing a law, passing a regulation, simply because it's, it, was, it was their funds that they were donating. Uh, so to a certain extent, I think that will help protect it. Um, nothing's ever perfect, though. Yep. No. The, the vast, I would say the vast majority of experience of all the programs in the country that we've seen have not shown uh, any of those schools to start. The one experience you're talking about is very small. We talk about, we've done a study at our foundation about the percentage of fraud and waste in, in public and private schools in areas with school choice. Proportionally, it's much higher in public schools. So the point I'm trying to make there is that, that the experience shows that these things don't happen when you have a school voucher program. But the madrasas, I actually saw Milton and Rose ask that question, and Milton gave an answer very similar to Adam's. And when uh, he, he, he was finished, Rose said, you know, this country can stand a few madrasas. That was her answer. Uh, sorry, I was just going to interject that the, the one important uh, uh, kind of corollary to this is uh, uh, right now, from what I understand, many of the, the Islamic schools are funded by Wahhabi uh, foundations. Um, and, and, and if you open up the choice and allow more options for uh, Muslim families, uh, Islamic families, the, 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 there's... Most Muslims in this country are not anywhere close to radicalized. Uh, they they just you know they might want a religious education. If their only choice is maybe a school that's more doctrinarily conservative, well, they might choose that um, simply to get a, a, a religious education. If there's a broader choice, that makes it much less likely. I think. Yes, sir. I'm Arnold King, and I'm with King Kasafi. I want to thank the panel for again for uh, having this discussion. It's a great discussion. But my my two questions are: one, what about the Southern states that had Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and others? Have you checked their expenditure? If so, how do they look? And uh, the other question is: uh, what kind of eye and thing that about education expenditure? Because seeing if they allow fall and waste, and it seems like they are. Uh, they spending the wrong thing on education. That's the problem right there. I want to talk about the sort of Mississippi, the expenditures on the uh, the pension side of things, and how they're spending funds on that way. Um, 
you know, I'm not really familiar with what's going on in Mississippi, but um, if your question is typically how, like, uh, expenditures are set for pension plans, um, you know, it's, it's basically an actuarial formula where you take into account the sort of assets you've gained over a period of time. It's, it's, it's slightly formulaic. And then the legislature has to basically um, make the choice whether or not they're going to appropriate the funds to pay for those benefits. More oftentimes, um, at least in the last 10 years, they haven't made those, those choices. So those bills have actually grown over time. And they're now sort of competing with other budget items. Actually, if you look at um, retiree benefit um, spending for 08, it was about $108 billion for all states, if you include pensions and retiree health care. And, and that uh, is up there with higher education at this point, which is just astounding. Um, higher education, um, the state spent about $152 billion um, in higher education, and, and, and you know, pensions and retiree health benefits are now rivaling that. I'm not sure if that gets at your question. I'm just I'm not familiar with what's going on in Mississippi, unfortunately. Adam, you might want to. Southern? Southern states. The southern states, generally. Yeah, southern states. So, in general. Southern states tend to spend less uh, yeah. overall. Um, uh, it varies from state to state, but uh, generally spend less. Um, and, and you're right. I think a huge uh, part of what's going on is just waste. They spend it on a lot of bells and whistles. I think there was a story out recently that um, was it forty thousand or forty. Uh, a lot of money was spent on laptops uh, from the stimulus funds. Uh, for, for kids in this school, a large school district, instead of uh, going to core services. Um, uh, huge buildings are being built all the time. You know, the, the most famous was uh, out in L.A., uh, a, a $500 million school, high school. Um, it, 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 it's insane. <laughs> I, I think it's quite literally insane what we spend on, on, um, on buildings and facilities. Um, so that, that, that's been a huge increase over the years, too. I would, I would only add that I think in the southern states that I've looked at, and I'd like to do some more study on this, you know, most states sort of have a roughly 50, 45, 46 uh, breakout between uh, state spending and local spending. I think the local share of the expenditures are higher in southern states. You look at a place like South Carolina, they do only have a, uh, the state share is smaller than the local share. That's what we should look at. But yes. the range on a per state, the range on the per state basis is, is narrower right. than you would think. It isn't like some states right. are spending 7,000. Right. So the low spending states are spending 11,000 or 12,000. Right. Yeah, yeah they're all found, at 14. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say I haven't found variation, like at least wide variation in spending patterns in terms of education. But to your point in terms of the uh, con uh, spending on construction as well as other sort of modernization improvements, a lot of that you won't actually find on the balance sheets because they're sort of off-balance sheet investments. Those are largely funded by um, uh, debt. And so you'll see a debt service line, but you're actually not going to see the full cost of, of that construction or modernization um, unless you really know what you're looking for. So that's actually just a point and I And then the interest on the debt yeah. is one of those buckets that they don't count. But, of course, if you were comparing with a private school, you got you know, they have to build buildings. They have to pay interest and so forth. So. Yep. Benefits. That's exactly right. And so in Indianapolis, of the property tax, 50% goes to education, 25 just to interest on debt. So, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. My name is Lee Yang. Uh, I've been in several education forums, but what I heard is usually it's, a, it's sort of partial rather than take the whole picture. And here we have uh, expenditures and budget. The problem is you take the number just for granted that the number is good for the 
educational purpose. The problem, as I think you are aware, the abuse of fraud is so serious. So if we want to really focus the energy, a choice of education, whether you should send a school or whether you should prefer a private school or voucher school, you really have to look into the real effect, whether that is really produce a good quality of education. And then so far as I see is that first uh, the number is really don't really tell you that their achievement. What I mean is a lot of percentage of budget is really diverted to benefit a few to put into their pockets. Well, for instance, in Maryland, they have a free meal supposedly for the lower income, but problem is because they want to draw a bigger picture, a bigger budget, so they can't the whole students. Once they get a budget and then they prepare a meal, and that is not just so-called free meal, but they charge everybody, including the teachers. Once they get the money, they put it into the pocket, they say, they don't put it back to the, the state or county. They even get a county for 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 expenditure for the free meals. Now after they say they, they sell the meal, they put the money back because they say they need the money for the free meal. So how many <laughs> meal you had to for that? And then again, they have a shuffling of budget from state, from local to county to state, and then from state to state to to local. And of course, they also have a federal budget. And then uh, if you are counting all this, uh, we, we long distinguish yeah, and uh, separate them out, that is uh, another problem. And uh, most of all, I'm thinking about the uh, really factor of the uh, benefit of education when you think about private and public. And I'm thinking that public maybe have a, at least they have an advantage of the social relationship. And for them to understand and uh, anti-racism for one thing. And because a uh, private school may be generally more proper, poor, very prejudiced, uh, biased, especially if you think about a church and faith-based, uh, that kind of, uh, of uh, relationship. That's why we have problem now. And they, they really don't promote the democracy, promote the real justice. So that that's those are a lot of questions there, a lot of points there. Right. So, right. so add, we have to do a take into those uh, to, into account. Well, 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 let's address those. Go ahead. Well, the, the, the founder Foundation for Educational Choice has done some some great research as has has uh, Neil McCluskey here on on what kids learn in public and private schools, and it turns out that uh, kids in private schools uh, actually know more uh, American history, have a. Uh, 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 Greater adherence to kind of democratic principles and understanding of them, um, and 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 private schools are a lot less homogeneous than uh, one might might imagine. Um, they do pull together uh, a wide range of uh, of individuals and families, and if more people had the opportunity, I think you would see that increase. Right now, we have segregated schools yeah. um, by income and race, um, and and it's hard to imagine uh, it getting worse. And, and all indications from current systems, current programs, is that it will get better. When you assign children by zip code, you get a student body composed uh, composition that looks just like how the neighbors are. So there's actually more, uh, well, there was a study that Milton pointed to me out to me one time about how, ch uh, how diverse is the student body uh, of private schools versus public schools. Private schools are more diverse and the behavior of children 
as measured by when they go to the lunchroom and they sit and have lunch, are they likely to eat with somebody of a different race or not? There, there's more diversity as measured by that in private schools than public schools. In addition, getting to the question of the fraud, I view that as like I don't get involved in the arguments about curriculum and do we need this kind of curriculum or that or whole word learning or a smaller class. I think that you can't, I, th I mean, those are all interesting, but to me, the, the system cannot shake out the bad ideas, just like it can't shake out fraud and corruption, as long as it's organized like the Soviet agricultural system. So as long as it's organized like, you know, got one guy in a room deciding how many blue and green trousers get made, it's just endemic to that kind of a system that it, it's, you're going to have waste. It's only when you, you know, you're going to have 70 years of bad harvests. Only when you organize the system from the bottom up and people get to vote with their feet does, does anyone have any incentive to start cutting out fraud and waste? And so until we're, we're, there's no point in saying, well, we're going to try to fight this problem by just chiseling out of the public school system. You'll never get there until you organize it so you're not assigning kids to schools by zip code. But look, look how we do it with higher education. We use vouchers. Our Pell Grants are a voucher. Uh, the GI Bill is a voucher. We don't say you go to this university because this is your zip code. You get a voucher and you get to go pay for it. Um, it's only at K through 12 that we assign by zip codes and we're getting 70 years of bad harvest. Other questions? That's there and in the back over there. Just like to point out that uh, the summer 2009, uh, the stats came out for uh, from the federal government that uh, the large metropolitan areas of our country, uh, the, the big cities, 38% of the graduating classes dropped out and never graduated. I don't see how that number could get any worse by switching to uh, private schools. So, Well, in Indianapolis, isn't there a district with about 22% graduation? Uh, Indianapolis Public School District had 15% graduation rate for African-American males. In okay. New York City... And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, if I made that wrong, I'm, I'm for the the privatizing school. I got that. Uh, it's, okay. Yeah, and so in the, I think we're creating just, if it isn't obvious, a world-class disaster coming. To me, the left and the right fight about what are really a bunch of downstream effects. If you've got one kid graduating with that much human capital at 18 and another kid with a thimbleful, their life prospects are set. So the left and the right fight about income inequality, racial inequality, and such. That's all to me downstream. Unless you can, f if you, unless you can fix this, you're just rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. But if you could fix this, you could, in the space of a generation, I would think a lot of ills that have afflicted our society for two centuries or more are would get washed out. But it would take a generation to do it. That's right. And, and to that point, uh, a lot of the a lot of the benefits of, of school choice uh, come out in, in things other than achievement uh, achievement scores. So uh, increased graduation rates. Uh, in other words, uh, a lot of the kids might not actually score that much better or uh, statistically significantly better, um, especially in, in small samples, but they do graduate at much higher rates. In other words, those schools are giving them uh, skills, social skills, and, and life skills that uh, lead to their graduation, sometimes uh, lead to a much higher uh, participation in college, and, and, and that carries through your whole life. It's not just a test score. The business model that's emerging for the United States is one educated group who can compete and, uh, and create value on a global level a much larger group that can't, and then a redistribution state. That's a silly business model for us to be pursuing. 
Yes, ma'am, in the back, and then one more after this. Hi, my name is Margaret Newell, and I'm pretty much here for purposes of personal interest, but um, I, I think the voucher system is um, sounds like a good idea for many reasons, but in assessing the persuasiveness of the budgetary reasons for it, I was wondering how, how, how you accounted for the fact that schools have become delivery vehicles for many welfare benefits for kids, and whether those amounts for, like, you know, um, cheap lunch and after-school child care and, um, you know, occupational therapy and things like that were included in your numbers, and whether switching to vouchers would have impacts on those parts of the budgets of states and local governments. That's a great question. Please, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, mean just, just from a purely sort of uh, balance sheet perspective, those things aren't reported in any sort of detailed way. Um, it's really, really difficult to, to understand, like, what spending goes in the social services or human services budget um, and, and is directed towards education spending and what's in the K-12 through uh, spending. Um, it, it, it really just um, requires a, a level of digging that's just not um, at least practical for me, but I hope someone does it, um, just because it would be good to get a, a better financial statement out of the states. I mean, it's just alarming to me um, how much uh, is sort of papered over. I mean, again, it's the, it's the problem of the other category, except, you know, you have other categories in state financial statements, but then you also have these categories where you have these big buckets with very little detail, so you don't even know where the money is going. So you touched on a great point. Under, under the accounting standards that govern private corporations, you, you basically make a 6% uh, assumption for what your pension assets are going to earn. The under government accounting runs from a, they make much more optimistic assumptions. There's an actuarial firm called Buck, who I think is behind a lot. You know Buck? I do. <laughs> behind a lot of what's going on. Because basically the, every accountant who's been signing these financial statements, I mean every actuary who's been signing the accounting statements for these states should go to prison. But they've been put in a bind by if you don't, you know, if you don't sign it, we're going to bring in Buck, and Buck is this actuarial firm that special. They have about I think 25% market share, and basically they're the the hammer that the private actuaries get threatened with. So anyway, it's there's just a lot of it's unbelievably bad accounting it, for government accounting. You could never run a private business with that with these kinds of assumptions. <coughs> I, I think your point was really interesting, and, and, and it is extremely difficult, like Kill said, to find, to find out all that, but it, it's something I hadn't really considered. Um, I, I had thought about the, the expansion of the welfare state essentially through the, the schools as the point of a, uh, access, uh, trying to expand to preschool right now, and um, a lot of uh, school districts have um, family outreach programs where they go to the home, and uh, th this, this is a big controversy with the uh, Obamacare uh, uh, provisions um, uh, to teach them how to be parents. And, you know, a, a lot of it uh, maybe uh, is, is good-sounding things, but they, they are putting a lot of the social services through the schools and, and, and trying to expand that. So it's a really great question, I think. Very good question. If you, yes, sir, last question. What is the difference in um, unionization of the private schools versus the public schools. Um, I'm just, just saying because of the growth of the teacher unions over the last 30 years, 30 to 40 years, coincides with a education decline that we've seen. And is there a difference between the private schools and the public schools and the, with the vouchers? 
Adam Patrick. I, I, I've never seen. I, I don't remember seeing any numbers on that. Uh, I, I would think the unionization would be extremely low, considering you know Catholic schools not unionized and uh, religious schools in general, and they tend to be small one-off um, uh, operations, uh, not not large companies. So I, I would think it would be really, really unusual. I'd add to that that, uh, you know, I have as much problem with the teachers' union as anyone, but I think it's a mistake to just uh, focus on the teachers' union. I think of there as being a guild. There's a guild that's defending the monopolist rent. That's the whole point of a guild. No point in getting mad at the guild. Their whole purpose is to defend that monopolist rent. The guild isn't just the teachers' union, but it includes it. But remember, there are whole levels that folks like you and I never see. Behind your school, there's the district, the county, the state, and the federal levels. And it isn't really the union that's the only problem. But That's the guild, and it includes the union, but it's a much broader group of people that we have to be focused on. Not